DiscerningHearts.com presents Villains of the Early Church and How They Made Us Better Christians with Mike Aquilina. Mike Aquilina is a popular author working in the area of church history, especially patristics, the study of the early church fathers. He's the executive vice president and trustee of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, a Roman Catholic research center based in Steubenville, Ohio. He is a contributing editor of Angelus Magazine and general editor of the Reclaiming Catholic History series from Ave Maria Press. He is the author or editor of more than 50 books, including Villains of the Early Church, the book on which this series is based. He has hosted 11 television series on the Eternal Word Television Network and is a frequent guest commentator on Catholic Radio. Villains of the Early Church and How They Made Us Better Christians with Mike Aquilina. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome back, Mike. Hey, thanks for having me back, Chris. It's uh, such an important villain we're talking about today. I hate to give him more of due than I should, but <laughs> Arius is, he's still around. He hasn't left the building, has he? No, the good thing about about uh, giving the villains their due is that it always brings out the stories of the heroes. And that really is the providential point of it all. St. Augustine said that God permits these challenges to come to the church so that the heroes will arise. You know, uh, without an Arius, there maybe wouldn't have been an Athanasius, at least not the way we understand Athanasius today, because Athanasius's life was shaped by the Arian controversy, and all the hardships he endured were because of his uh, challenge to Arius. So I think it's not such a bad thing to give our attention to the villains, at least for this little bit of time. I have a new idea for a book for you, Mike. One of <laughs> I know you only have like 17 in the hopper after you've published so many already. The Seven Degrees of Saints, because when, like you said, the challenges brought, brought us an, an Athanasius, but then when you look at all of the lives he touched, it takes us to today. So, right. it, I mean, it, it really is. You could play the Seven Degrees game. But unfortunately, that we have to play it with Arius is unfortunate. Tell us about him. Well, Arius was a priest of the city of Alexandria. He was trained in Antioch and went to Alexandria. And he was something of a, an intellectual snob, I think. Mm. Uh, you know, he, he thought he knew better than a lot of people. And he was teaching kind of quietly a subordinationist heresy. He was teaching that the son was not co-equal or co-eternal with the father, that the son was not the creator, but a creature created by God the Father. And he was the firstborn of creation. He was the greatest of the creatures, but still just a creature. So what he was doing there was undermining the central dogmas of Christianity. He was undermining the dogma of the Trinity, that there are three persons in our one God. And he was undermining the doctrine of the incarnation, that God became truly man in Jesus Christ. This was no small matter. But again, he, he kept it quiet for a time. And then one day, while his bishop, Alexander of Alexandria, was kind of holding forth on the Trinity in a, in a gathering of the clergy, Arius stood up and challenged him and denounced him as a heretic. This is serious business. So the conversation goes on from there. 
Arius will not budge, and of course Alexander cannot budge because he's he's arguing for the apostolic tradition here, the faith of the creeds, the faith of of the fathers, and so he uh, he excommunicates Arius. Now the problem is that Arius's heresy is already spreading; it's appealing to many people because it seems rational, it seems logical. Arius is saying quite simply, "Hey, look, three does not equal one." We cannot say we worship one God if we say we worship three persons. And then he says that it's, it's just reasonable to believe, based on the scriptures, that the Son is subordinate to the Father and that the Son comes after the Father in time. So he was kind of a, a, a genius at propagandizing and spreading his word. He came up with these catchy little slogans to summarize his error, and he set them to music. Little ditties, little hymns that, uh, that were like ad jingles. You could sing them. They stayed in your memory. They wouldn't get out of your head. And they spread his heresy all through the empire. There was one in which he put forth his idea that there was a time when the Son did not exist. The Son of God did not exist. And he summed it up as there was when he was not. There was when he was not. There was when he was not. And it repeated in these songs so that it was like an ad slogan, as I said. It wouldn't get out of your head, and it insinuated itself into your thoughts. The heresy spread so fast and so far that St. Jerome later on observed that it seemed as if the world awoke in the morning to find itself Arian. Oh, wow. I think we could understand it. It's almost like a rap song. Yes. I'm not knocking rap, but it's that type of easy mantra back and forth and back and forth until it penetrates inside your head. Right, right. He taught us the the power of good music, memorable music, hymns that kind of spread doctrine. Now, in his case, the doctrine was false, but because he did it, and because he did it so effectively, there arose later on in that century great Catholic hymnographers like St. Ambrose of Milan and St. Hilary of Poitiers, who took the techniques of Arius and put them to use for good Catholic doctrine. And those men made a point of ending every one of their hymns with a Trinitarian doxology that emphasized the Incarnation. And we still do this today. We have that doxological verse in so many of our hymns. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. You know, we have... Our hymns, still today, after more than a millennium, ending with the doxology to the Trinity because we're still trying to inoculate ourselves against these rationalist heresies like the the heresy of Arius. This is so important for Catholics, like Christians, to understand and be aware of. And it's, it's not so difficult if we come to understand what Arius was offering was a, can we say, a two-dimensional nature of God, something that I'm, I'm trying to express this. So, you know, like paintings for the longest time were very flat. That was the best that they could do to put down what they were seeing and experiencing. And then along came 3D. <laughs> 3D is, gives you a dimension and an aspect to it that you hadn't seen before. And what Arius, if I'm hearing you right, Mike, is presenting a 2D, two-dimensional 
type of easy digestible vision of God where the nature of the Holy Trinity is literally 3D. Yeah. And look, for the first time in all of history, Christianity was a legal religion. So pagans might be tempted to sign on the bottom line if they could find these hard sayings a little more palatable. And Arius, because he was such a rationalist, made Christianity a little more palatable for the pagans. Now, unfortunately, he made it that way by making it less Christian. By, by taking out all the things that were hard about Christianity, he also took out all the things that were distinctive about Christianity and the things that were most true and at the heart of the faith. The triune God, the God who is love for all eternity. And Athanasius and Alexander before him pointed out that if we say that there was a time when the Son was not, then we say there is a time when God was not Father. We cannot call him eternal father because he would not be a father eternally. If there was a time before the son, then there was a time when God was not father. And that is a statement that we cannot accept. God is eternal father who is eternally in love with his son. And the love that they share is the Holy Spirit. We say that God is love. If God is a solitude, then that's a falsehood. We cannot say that God is love. Even divine love requires an object, you know, mm -hmm. uh, uh, an object for its love. And the object of the Father's love is the Son. God is love. We don't say that God loves. We say that God is love. And through the incarnation, we ourselves participate in that eternal love. We become godlike. St. Peter said, we become partakers of the divine nature. And that nature is love itself, which is eternal. And that's huge. Because the na very nature of love, as you have described it, it, by its very nature has to be shared. It's like I can look at my husband, and, but if I, if I never care for him, if I never embrace him, if I don't encourage him and be with him when he's down, if I don't interact with him, then that's not love. That's right. It, it's very flat. And we're brought into that love through our baptism. So that calls us to share. That is a huge difference in what it is to be Christian in the world, is to love in an extraordinary way. Yes, yes. And, you know, without this idea of eternal love, that God is love in essence, this Christianity becomes something other than what it is. It becomes a, a, a really a kind of human slavery to the divine. That's okay as far as it goes, that we should be serving God with everything we have, and our, our, our servitude should be absolute. But God wanted us for more than that. He wanted our service to be that of children, the children of God, the sons of God, rather than slaves. He wanted us to do what we do willingly and out of love. Think that Arius was setting us off on a, um, on a bad road. It's lucky that we didn't get too far down that road. I guess it's providential we didn't get too far down that road. Because the heresy of, of Arius was opposed firmly, even though he had mighty powerful allies, including, uh, at, at one point, a majority of the bishops in the world, mm. uh, uh, and a large majority of the bishops in the world, and a majority of the government leaders, including one of the later emperors. So he had power on his side, but he was opposed by great saints, and great saints tend to overcome all the power of the earth.
Yeah, because I think the ramifications of something like this is huge because it permeates everything that we do as Christians. The the great, I, I want to say the charism that John Paul II illuminate for us even more fully is that of solidarity, that we, in essence, we don't go forward unless we all go forward. Mm-hmm. And so we have to care for even our enemies. We have to pray for them. We have to lift them up. We have to seek peace. We have to, to well, everything from Matthew 25, right? And yeah. that's the call. And that's the origin of that call, isn't it? It's love. Yes. And it, well, the, the problem with the Arian heresy, and well, one of the problems with the Arian heresy is that it kept mutating. And so it kept dividing people further, one group from another, so that there were, it seems, endless varieties of Arianism in order to to get past the ancient creeds and then to get past the Nicene Creed, which emerged from the, the Council of Nicaea in 325 and then was further clarified at the Council of Constantinople later in the same century. In order to get past these obstacles, the Arians produced all kinds of justifications, all kinds of theologies, and they ended up producing all kinds of varieties of Arianism. Uh, it, it was like a cancer that kept metastasizing so that it was hard to fight. Later on in that century, there arose the great theologians of Cappadocia, Basil and Gregory of Nazianzus and Gregory of Nyssa, who opposed this with all their might and main, and their intellectual might was was as mighty as it gets. So they really did kind of lay down the definitive arguments from scripture, from tradition, and from reason against the Arian heresy. From that time on, the Arian presence began to diminish in the church, began to wane. It did not disappear, you know, especially in the borderlands of the empires and among the barbarians outside the empire, Arianism continued in some of those places, in some of those places into the early Middle Ages, but it was weakened. And it's not even certain that we can call it Arianism. That was more the faction they identified with. I think at the parish level, most people never gave a thought to the depths of Trinitarian theology. You know, this was an argument for people who lived far away. It was not what they bothered themselves with. It's not how they identified. They identified themselves as Christian, and they continued to live as Christians without worrying over much about the depths of theology. We'll return to the villains of the early church and how they made us better Christians with Mike Aquilina in just a moment. Did you know that you can obtain a free app which contains all your favorite Discerning Hearts programs? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Archbishop George Lucas, Father Mauritius Fildi, and so many more, including episodes from Inside the Pages, can be obtained on the Discerning Hearts free app. This also includes all the novenas and devotionals and prayers, including the Holy Rosary and Stations of the Cross, the Chaplet of St. Michael, and the Seven Sorrows of Our Lady, all available on the Discerning Hearts free app. Visit the iTunes and Google Play app stores to obtain your free Discerning Hearts app today. From a letter from St. Paul to the Ephesians, Chapter 6. 
Be strengthened in the Lord in the might of his power. Put on the armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our wrestling is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and the powers, against the world rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness on high. Therefore, take up the armor of God so that you may be able to resist the evil every day and stand in all things perfect. Stand, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of justice, and having your feet shod with the readiness of the gospel of peace, in all things taking up the shield of faith, with which you may be able to quench all fiery darts of the most wicked one. And take for yourself the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit that is the Word of God. With all prayer and supplication, pray at all times in the Spirit, and be vigilant in all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. The St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology is a nonprofit research and educational institute that promotes life-transforming scripture study in the Catholic tradition. Founded by Dr. Scott Hahn and with current Vice President Mike Aquilina, the center serves clergy and laity, students and scholars with research and study tools from books and publications to multimedia and online programming. The St. Paul Center welcomes you to their free online studies. Whether you're studying scripture for the first time looking to take your studies to a higher level, or whether you're ready for advanced training, you've come to the right place. In addition, for each track of study, they recommend books that will enhance your study and prayer and build your library of essential works in biblical theology and spirituality. The studies are free. Just visit SalvationHistory.com to view a complete library. We now return to The Villains of the Early Church and How They Made Us Better Christians with Mike Aquilina. Okay, now here's the challenge for so many of us who are listening to what you're saying about Arianism and the teachings of this villain Arius. That for us, what it could look like in our modern day is if someone... um, in, in there, in the, I'm going to give them a, an all reverence, and I'm sure they have a holy, pious intention of heart, but they look at Jesus and they say, well, he's the son of God, but they don't connect that he is also God and that the father is way out there and there's Jesus here and that the Holy Spirit is you know, like a, oh, forgive me, Mike, but like a UPS guy that just delivers gifts. Yes. And that fuller, deeper penetration of the mystery, that's where we can begin to slide off a bit, can't we? Well, the Orthodox theology of the Trinity calls us to ever deeper understanding throughout a lifetime, and we'll never comprehend it. But we'll, we'll grow in our understanding, and we'll grow in our love as time goes on. It seems to me that what people were after with the Arian doctrine of the Trinity is something they could comprehend, and comprehend in fairly short order. You know, it's just a very simple argument, and you can master it, you can ace that exam, in very little time, and then you can move on. You can call yourself a teacher. You don't have to bother your head with it again. Well, unfortunately, the Trinity, the dogma of the Trinity, as it was revealed in the scriptures, as it was passed on from the apostles, and as it was understood by the fathers, is something that bothers our head. 
-hmm. (laughs) It's something that calls us closer to God. It calls us to contemplate God, and it, it promises never to be exhausted, even in eternity, even when we no longer have the bounds of time and the limitations of human understanding. We're still going to be taking that in for all of eternity, and we'll never exhaust its riches. Oh, you're talking about a relationship, aren't you? Yeah. It, this isn't just a theological tome or a, a hypothesis. I mean, this we're talking about something much. When we say deeper, it's not so much deeper for the head. It, this is about the the whole person, the deeper essence of the heart. Yes, we're talking about the very character of God. We're talking about the very identity of God. If Arius were right. God would not be eternal father. God would not be who we understand him to be. God would be limited as a father because his fatherhood would have had a beginning. But as we know it to be, God is eternal father. God is is the perfection of fatherhood. And God loves us with perfect fatherhood and has brought us into relationship in the eternal son. St. Paul uses this preposition over and over again in his letters. He says, that we live in Christ after our baptism, and Christ lives in us. There's this mutual indwelling that we have that empowers us to be sons of God. And as I said before, and quoting St. Peter, partakers of the divine nature. We share in the very nature of God, and that is the greatest mystery. It's the mystery of our baptism. It's the, the very meaning of salvation. Saints would come later and tell us about interior castles and and challenge us to ascend mountains. And it, we got a roadmap from a young girl who showed us a little way to get yes. there, didn't she? Uh, yes, we did. Yes, we did. And when you think about it, all of those subsequent developments in spirituality would have been unthinkable in the Aryan system. They would not have even been pursued in the Aryan system, which is rationalist and which is reductionist. It's something that reduces Christianity to a syllogism and leaves it there. For me, it became more tangible, Mike, and maybe for you and maybe some others out there. I can only use my example, but when we had our first child, I thought, I love this baby. (laughs) I just, how could I possibly love another human being when they came into this world? And so when I was ready to have our second, I began to have all these concerns and anxieties. I can't possibly love this other child as much as I love this first one. And my gosh, the mystery of it is when that child was born, it just, it just multiplied. Yes. There, it's those types of things that that type of experience of love, it, it never divides. It's just this mystery of its multiplication. Yeah, our experience of parenting on earth is a participation in divine fatherhood, in God's fatherhood, which is eternal. And it's, it's essential to him. It's, it's, it's his core identity. And it's, you know, for the person who uh, maybe give birth to a child or a parent a child, but it's also those who just love another. You know, you see that so often for those who become priests or religious or, or those who care for nurses and doctors and, and teachers. And we see that. That's that self-giving in that relationship that is exampled for us and lived out through the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I think apart from this understanding of human love as a participation in divine love, our love soon becomes something less than love. It becomes self-seeking. We've got to strive against that. 
uh, we've got to draw closer to eternal love so that our human loves enjoy a greater perfection and are are more of a gift to the other. So for all you Catholics out there on a Sunday, when you say the word consubstantial, what you're doing is you're <laughs> kind of waving a finger at Arius. <laughs> well, that's true. Maybe I hope they're wagging a finger. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there you go. Um, but I think that, that people should understand that that word, which is an unfamiliar word, uh, apart from the liturgical context, it's an unusual word. That word is in there because of the insistence of Alexander of Alexandria and because of the teaching, the later teaching, of Athanasius, his secretary and disciple and his successor as Bishop of Alexandria. They wanted that word in there, and the Arians did not want that word in there. They wanted to say that the Son was of like substance with the Father so that they could retain uh, their belief that he was a creature Alexander and then Athanasius after him were insistent upon the term homoousios, consubstantial, to show this equality within the Trinity, this identity of nature. Well, I think we could do programs upon programs about Arian and Arius and his subsequent partakers and some of the damages that were done with that. But, I mean, this is why it's so wonderful to have villains of the early church and how they made us better. I mean, you also give us some really decent footnotes and guides on where we can find more things. There are many great books written about this period, about the Arian controversy, about the Council of Nicaea, and about the heroes and the other characters like Athanasius and Constantine the Great and Basil and Gregory and Gregory. There are so many books that you can read if you want to pursue this issue, which is really an issue at the heart of our faith. It's there, and it's the, the reason why we recite that Nicene Creed every Sunday when we go to Mass. Yeah, and what, what would you say to someone out there who is saying, I, I guess I still don't completely understand it all, Mike? Well, you're never going to completely understand it. That's what heaven is for. What this life is for this life on earth is for striving toward heaven, and that's what we should be doing. The, the work that's involved in growing in our understanding of the Trinity is so rewarding. It feels like work sometimes. It's challenging, and it's difficult to work at that level of abstraction, but it's rewarding. And, and it helps us to grow in charity if we submit ourselves to that kind of sacrificial effort. Well... I appreciate you so much helping us to understand this in a very deep way. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me on, Chris. You've been listening to Villains of the Early Church and How They Made Us Better Christians with Mike Aquilina. To hear and or to download this episode, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts in cooperation with the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, and if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for The Villains of the Early Church and how they made us better Christians with Mike Aquilina.